throughout the, the years of the Third Coast Festival and with all the, the listening that we get to do and that we love to do, we've been consistently impressed by producers who take subjects that we hear about a lot and present them in a way, you know, these, are, these are subjects we should care about, but they entice us to listen. And these are often subjects that we've already tuned out about um, and you'll hear about those um, when they're introduced um, in just a few moments by our moderator, Danae Roberts. But there are subjects I think we'll all agree that um, are not heard and not told, but they're also very important subjects that are happening in our world, whether it's civil rights, um, unrest, uh, you know, turmoil, healthcare, and we could go on and on, econ economics, trade, um, that we tend to tune out. But there are some people doing work that just make us, that open up our ears one more time to new ideas and perspectives and emotions. And I, I'm curious about how, how do they do it? How do they accomplish that? And that's what we're going to find out on this panel. Um, we are going to be led by our wonderful moderator, Demay Roberts, a very accomplished producer and celebrated producer, a champion of the independent producer through her work on AIR and uh, storiesfirst.org, which is an online uh, magazine published by her nonprofit company, Media Rights, and something I, a place I really highly recommend you check out. So we're very fortunate to have her here today to lead this session that we're calling Megaphone. So welcome to Megaphone, and I'm very happy to be here. I, uh, we have a lot to talk about, and I want to get to everybody and uh, our subject right now, which is to how do you bring to light or shed light on difficult issues and topics, and how do you find your voice and do something new and fresh with what might be considered charted territory, especially those topics that have been covered quite a bit, a lot, um, in the news, such as abortion, race, and the Middle East. We'll be talking with independent producers Sandy Tolan, Ari Golden, and Jonathan Mitchell, and visual and performance artist Damali Ayo about rising to the challenge of addressing and remaining true to the investigation of those hard topics while keeping their artistic vision amid highly politicized themes. So on the panel today, uh, to my left is Damali Ayo, and she is a Portland, Oregon artist who creates dialogue-driven conceptual art that engages contemporary social issues through the media of assemblage and installation. Through her work, Ayo reconceptualizes everyday objects to create a shift in a viewer's perspective on our world and our positions within it. And Damali recently hit the news a lot with her uh, web art performance, rentanegro.com, and uh, we'll be talking more about that. That explores the commodification of race and the relationships between blacks and whites in society. This site allows a user the chance to promote your connection with a creative, articulate, friendly, attractive, and pleasing African-American person, that's a quote, <laughs> through a series of fees and services. And uh, the site has been uh, highlighted internationally, including articles <coughs> in Salon.com, The Village Voice, Washington Post, Chicago Tribune, Harper's Magazine, with radio spots on the BBC, ABC Australia, NPR, and PRI. So welcome to Molly. 
And next we have Ari Golden to my right there, formerly Ari Birnbaum, a newlywed, and we congratulate her on her new status, <laughs> new marital status. An independent producer living in Mill Valley, California. She has been working in public radio for six years and has produced a feature film, a national college speaking tour, and music festivals in San Francisco. And she started as, in radio as a reporter for KANU, the NPR affiliate in Lawrence, Kansas. And from there she moved to the San Francisco Bay Area and worked as the senior producer for PRI's Beyond Computers, a weekly high-tech news and information program. She was approached by Sarah Varney to produce Beta Project, an audio compilation of women's stories, and uh, those were about abortion before it was legalized in 1974. Beta Project inspired Shades of Grey, which expanded into an hour documentary about the many truths inside abortion, and we'll be hearing uh, excerpts of that today. So welcome, Ari. And to my left here is Jonathan Mitchell, and he is a radio producer, composer, and sound designer. He's the former senior producer of Loose Leaf Book Company, a nationally syndicated public radio program for adults about books for kids, produced by Ben Manila Productions. He began his radio career as the creative director, creative director of PRI's Beyond Computers, a high-tech news and information program for which he also composed the theme music. His radio and composition work has been presented in venues around the world, including NPR's Lost and Found Sound series and the popular computer game, The Sims. And currently, he's a, con a regular contributor to PRI's weekly art magazine, Studio 360, and he can also be heard on The Next Big Thing and The Savvy Traveler. So welcome, Jonathan. Good afternoon. And to my right here, to my right, is Sandy Tolan, and he's produced hundreds and hundreds of documentaries and features for NPR, PRI, and CBC and other radio networks. He has written more than 30 newspaper and magazine articles, including, um, or I guess for more than 30 newspaper and uh, magazines, the New York Times, the, the Los Angeles Times, and The Nation. His specialty is the intersection of global geopolitics natural resources, ethnic identity, and social tensions, especially in Latin America and the Middle East. His work, uh, reported from more than 20 countries, has won numerous journalism awards, including three from the Overseas Press Club, three Robert F. Kennedy Awards, and a DuPont Columbia Silver <laughs> Baton. Tolan is the author of Me and Hank, a book examining sports and race relations, and he was a 1993 Neiman Fellow at Harvard University and a 2000 Hewlett Fellow and an IF Stone Fellow at the Graduate School of Journalism <coughs> at the University of California at Berkeley. And he recently taught Politics and Petroleum, co-sponsored by the Center for Latin American Studies at UC Berkeley. He's currently at work on The Lemon Tree, the book, stemming from um, the documentary of the same name that we'll be hearing an excerpt from today. So this is our panel, and I would like to welcome everybody to Megaphone. We'll be talking to each person, and we'll be hearing a, a cut of their work, an excerpt of their work, and we'll be taking questions after we talk to each person rather than at the very end. And we'll take a couple um, after each excerpt. 
So uh, we're beginning first with Mr. Toland and his radio piece, The Lemon Tree. So Sandy, uh, I understand that you're, you're writing this book, um, The Lemon Tree, from the radio documentary. So why don't you tell us before we hear the piece what the piece was about and how you actually got this story and what made you decide to, to do a piece about it? Well, it's, it came out of a series that was funded by, by CPB called World Views, and the idea was to try to get beneath the surface of the daily news um, through direct uh, first-person stories, and in that way to, to try to evoke the feeling of the story, rather, in a way of sort of piercing this, this crust that it can grow over us when we get so inundated with in this case in the Middle East with bombing after bombing and, and people just, they don't want to watch anymore, they don't want to hear anymore. And in a way, I mean, as you say, there's so many of these kinds of stories. I thought uh, Anne and, and Kara's piece this morning that was played about the border was that uh, other way of getting beneath the surface so that you know actually how it feels. And, and the way that, that I wanted to do this, uh, uh, 1948 was the year uh, that uh, the State of Israel was created and the Arab-Israeli War erupted. And 1998 was the 50th anniversary, so that seemed an opportunity to, to explore that. Um, and to be able to explore it in a way that somehow would combine the histories of Palestinians uh, and Israelis into one narrative. So with the luxury of, of a grant, obviously that, that helped create the luxury of time. And the luxury of time meant that I could spend uh, uh, several weeks over in Israel and Palestine, uh, going between Jerusalem and Ramallah, and, and interviewing a lot of people, reading oral histories from Palestinians, Israeli military history, the so-called Israeli uh, new historians, people who are evoking what happened in 48, and then looking, I felt more like a casting agent than a journalist for a lot of time, looking who's who can tell this story, who can evoke this, what, what way could we bring the stories together, and after uh, a series of, of interviews uh, and, and initial contacts, found a, a story that uh, that seemed to evoke as a metaphor the story of two peoples, because you know when you talk about the War of 1948, that's that's the neutral term to use. If you're talking to most Israelis, they will say, "Well, that's our War of Independence." <coughs> if you're talking to most Palestinians, they'll say, "Well, that's our Nakba," and Nakba means catastrophe. Uh, what was the birth of the State of Israel seen through the, the history that would be recounted, say, in the book Exodus by, by Leon Uris is a, is a heroic birth out of the Holocaust. Uh, for most Palestinians, it's a dispossession. A lot of people don't realize that 700,000 Palestinians fled or were driven out in, in 1948. So how do, you, how do you sort of get a, a, a simultaneous witness? That was the, that was the challenge. And uh, just, uh, you know, every now and then you, you come across a story that's so pure that you just want to sort of get out of the way. I mean, I, one other story I encountered in my life was the story of a, of a nomadic chief in Bolivia who uh, was faced with the decision of taking his people out of the forest into the hands of missionaries or, or basically perishing because the forest was, and the settlers were enclosing in on him. And it, at the same time, I felt, you know, if if the story is so beautiful and so pure, just step out of the way. This story, I don't know if you want me to go ahead oh, and introduce yeah, it into us, the, into the yeah, tape. Yeah, tell us what it's um, about and how you came upon it. Too. Well, the, the story 
I did a lot of interviews with people. Uh, my wife is an Arab journalist, and she had told me about the story. And then one night we went to dinner in Jerusalem with uh, an Israeli filmmaker and her husband, and she was telling the story again. Uh, and so I started thinking about that uh, among the stories, the story of, of an Israeli man who was six years old in 1948, and a, uh, excuse me, a Palestinian man who was six years old in 1948, and an Israeli woman who was six months old in 1948, and this common history that they have, and I won't say exactly what that common history is, but they basically discovered their common history in 1967 after the Six-Day War. So after realizing that that was a, that was a story that looked like a real potential to, to be able to evoke these simultaneous histories, uh, it just so happened the next day uh, my wife and I bumped into the Palestinian guy, literally, on the street in Ramallah, and he said, well, yeah, I'd be happy to talk to you. And, uh, and then I called uh, the Israeli woman, Dahlia, and she said, yeah, I'd be happy to talk to you. Mm -hmm. So I spent the next uh, several weeks going back and forth between Ramallah and Jerusalem and evoking the story. Uh, the story is about Bashir al-Hairi and Dahlia Ashkenazi Landau now, um, and it's a story of 1948, uh, starting in 1948, when Bashir and his family uh, and most of the other Palestinians living in Ramla and Lod, which in what was old Palestine, were driven out in the war uh, in July of 1948. Three months later, there was a family that had managed to survive the Holocaust in Bulgaria, the story of the Bulgarian uh, exception to the Holocaust is fascinating in itself. Maybe we can talk about that later. But they ended up coming to this same town of Ramle, fresh from Bulgaria, off a boat in Haifa. They ended up in this same community. For years, Bashir, <coughs> who had been exiled, and I remember Sean this morning in, in talking about in his piece says, Losing your home can be one of the most traumatic things that can happen to you, especially if you're a kid. And it made me think about uh, Bashir, who was six years old and marching into exile in Ramallah, saying, someday we will get our house back. Uh, Dahlia was six months old when she came, and she just wondered who had lived here before. She didn't know. She always wanted to know. She never quite got an answer. Uh, so. In 1967, uh, many of the Arabs were waiting for the triumph, which obviously didn't come. Uh, many Israelis were terrified that they would be obliterated, which obviously didn't happen. It was a fantastic victory for the Israelis, uh, one of the most crushing defeats ever for the Arabs. And at that point, Bashir decided, well, I'm not going to go back to my house in triumph, but maybe at least I could go ask for permission to come inside. So one day in 1967, in the summer, not long after the Six-Day War, he found himself in an Israeli bus station in Jerusalem. And that's, I don't know if you want to talk <coughs> no, a little more, but that's, that's where our story begins. Yeah, let's go ahead and hear the cut then. And this is from The Lemon Tree. Uh, 
Everything at the station is cold and silent. The wall and the faces. I approach a mirror on the wall and have a look at myself as if to make sure I was suited for the encounter. As if I were preparing to meet a lover. My cousin walked me from my thoughts. The bus is leaving. Whenever I heard a language, it was a language that was filled with threat for me, the language of the enemy. We knew uh, there was propaganda uh, against the so-called uh, Zionism, whatever that meant to the Arabs, trying to convince us that uh, Israel was not our place. The choice was I, either you go on your ships back to you where you came from or we push you into the sea. For some choice. <laughs> we were three, my two older cousins and me. Each of us chose a window seat sitting in a row, one behind the other. We were filled with infinite dreams. The fear and the horror of it cannot be described. The Six-Day War was in 67, so I was 19, 20 years old. You know, you just felt completely entrapped. That's how we felt. And we were biting our nails, not knowing what what, what, what should we do now, you know, what, what? The journey began. It was a journey of expectation, a journey of love and pain. We devoured each scene that passed before our eyes. Who would have thought that we would have entered our homeland as strangers? I will never forget it. The fact that we couldn't be accepted here, it was very clearly stated. And because we, who have just come out uh, from Europe, we had to take sick fantasies seriously. I had repeated dreams, night after night, as I was growing up, of uh, uh, Nazis in Israel, <laughs> you know trying to round me and my family and my friends up. Wherever we escaped, they were there. If we went this alleyway, they, they would come up this way, and if we came this alleyway, they would, th there was no way out. Uh. We got off the bus. And at that moment, memories came rushing back, as if 18 years had never passed. We were in our hometown, speaking our own language, walking freely down our old street in Rabbi. From time to time, I would ask my parents and uh, other people um, who were the people who lived in these Arab houses before. And why did they uh, leave? And uh, yeah, we were always told, yeah, people fled and left the uh, boiling soup on the table. You know, 
So it sounded like some kind of a cowardly escape. We were walking toward my house. I was confronting the unknown, lost in thought. How was I going to be received in that house? Who was going to be behind those closed doors? And I sort of tried to imagine what, what it is like to be so afraid that one would have to leave everything. Have you ever seen a lover drawn with a hidden magic toward his shrine, pulled by an invisible power that is beyond his comprehension? That was my state when a voice came from my depths. This is my home. And uh, I was uh, in a summer vacation from uh, the university, alone at home. My parents were working. I was wary. Should I knock forcefully and risk intimidating the people inside? Or knock softly and risk that the people would not hear me? I looked for the bell. I found the bell. I pressed the bell. And uh, the doorbell of the big gate uh, rang. I was taking everything in. I looked at the walls of the house, the windows, the trees. I saw the flowering tree. It had beautiful scent. And the towering palm tree, taller than the house. And I saw the lemon tree. After a few seconds, I heard a voice in Hebrew saying, Kien Kien, which means yes. And when I opened, I saw these three men with suits and ties in the summer of July in Israel. <laughs> and I found myself face to face with a young woman in her 20s. I saw them, and it was as if it was a revelation. I knew who they were. They were very wary and very shy, and they didn't know how they would be received. But it was like in a split second, it was like uh, as if I was always waiting for them. I told her, I am the son of the man who owned the house, who lived here before 1948, and I lived here too. It is very strange, but I knew at that moment that it was like completing a puzzle. It was like the second part of an unfinished reality was there confronting me. And I said, is it possible for me to come in and see the house? And uh, I opened the door wide and I said, yes, to come in. We can take questions if questions occur. Um, the mics are there. We'll take a couple of them um, if you have them. Um, but Sandy, so the door opens, and so the rest of the documentary flowed for you. you. You told me earlier that it was a struggle to figure out how to do this piece. It seemed like a, a departure from um, other work that you've done. And so tell us about the struggle to find the, the perfect way to tell this story. Well, actually, I mean, it, it was a struggle in the sense that I, most of, of what I've done over the years is, is narr you know, my own narration. But in the sense, it, it wasn't a struggle as far as 
it just seemed so clear that it had to be the two of them going back and forth. And, and almost immediately, the uh, other than this, this piece aired on Fresh Air, and I wanted to mention one of the people who was uh, involved in the editing is here, Chris Brooks, uh, did a wonderful job. And he was the one who convinced me to put in some of those evocative sounds of the bus and the bus station, which was a really great call, Chris. Um, Danny Miller at Fresh Air also was an editor, and, and Chris Ballman at Living on Earth as well. But, but uh, the the notion of setting up the sort of history at the beginning, which Terry did, uh, and Barbara Bogave, who was the original host, and then I came in and did a very little piece of narration, which is similar to what I said just before the piece started, and then it was produced in four parts. But the the whole idea was really to go back and forth between them. What was clear to me is that I wanted. Uh, I really knew that I wanted that meeting at the door to, uh, to sort of that be the payoff to the beginning, the sort of the end of the beginning of the piece. And so to go back and forth describing, you know, Bashir is sort of on a clear line to the door and, and Dolly is sitting in her house reflecting on, you know, what was, could have happened in 1967 for, from her perspective. Uh, so after that, it just became, uh, in a way, it was just sort of getting the rest of the stuff to fall away and, and have those, the relationship between those two serve as a kind of metaphor for the struggle between two people. So we go forward in time to uh, a supermarket bombing, to the fact that we learn later that, that uh, Bashir had his hand blown off in, in, in when he picked up a, a grenade that he believes was booby-trapped to look like a toy. That's his memory from childhood. We learn, you know, sort of the roots of this mistrust, uh, and then the relationship between the two, which is struggling to try to understand something beyond the sort of hardened hatred, and, and it, it just it, it basically moves forward chronologically from from that point in '67. In the canon of, of coverage of, and documentaries about the Middle East, was there something that you felt needed to be said that this piece addresses? Yeah, I think especially for an American audience, I think we've been raised a lot with the, with a kind of the Exodus, Leon Uris version of, of the history of that time, 48. And that's a, that's a powerful part of the story, the birth of Israel out of the Holocaust. But most of us growing up didn't have any idea. I mean, I didn't until I really started working on this or somewhat before that. But I mean, I, I had no idea that 700,000 people either fled or were driven out. And that's when, when people hear about the right of return, uh, I, don't th I think one of the things that's less know, least known here is the attachment that Palestinians have to the land. And Bashir is a really good way of exploring. I mean, some, there's, there's a poet, Palestinian poet named Mahmoud Darwish, who is incredibly eloquent on that point. But I think until people really understand the depth of the feeling of dispossession and attachment to the land, that's just a huge part of the history and of the struggle, which isn't understood. And my idea in the, in the book, as well as in the, in the uh, documentary, is to somehow have a mutual witness happening and, and to, to house both histories at once. We have a question from Steve Mencher. Yes, hi. I'm, I think it was wonderful to hear your piece a little bit in the context of some of the things we heard this morning, because it made me think about you know, the uses of reality in, in the documentary work. And I, the, the gentleman, for instance, was so poetic that it made me wonder about the translations that sounded when he said, you know, it sounded almost like Hemingway, I looked for the bell, I found the bell, I pressed the bell, 
uh, I looked at it like a lover. Did, did you select those sorts of things, or were these things that came in chunks and that you translated word for word? Uh, they were transmitted very faithfully, uh, but Bashir is influenced by the sort of um, somewhat, or, uh, and I don't know if ornate is the right word, but, but by the poetry, the Palestinian poetry, which can be very evocative. He's a writer himself. Some of the work that we took towards the end are actually excerpts from something he wrote. He wrote a letter to Dahlia in response to, to a letter that she wrote him when he was being um, sent into exile by the Israelis in 1982 into Lebanon. And she wrote an open letter in the Jerusalem Post pleading with them not to do that and pleading with Bashir to become less radical, less of a militant. And then he wrote a response to her called Ode to a Lemon Tree. And we took some of, the, some of that at the very end, the part you, you haven't heard, um, which is really sort of more evocative and, and more flowery. Um, but he tends to speak that way. And I think in a way he's like, when I was interviewing him, he was probably repeating some things that he's written because you know, I, I saw a mirror on the wall. Um, I, I asked myself, it's like going, or, you know, when he says, it's like, uh, have you ever seen a lover move with a hidden power? I mean, that's, he was saying that part, I don't think we used actual excerpts from his writing, but, but it's like when you, you know, he was so ready to kind of recite what, what was in his mind and in his, in, in his own sort of version of, of his reality that some of those phrases which sound more literary they've, they've become into part of his speech. Well, that was fabulous and just let me ask a very brief follow-up in that what this brings up is the kind of thing again that I thought would, might come out from the discussion this morning was in this kind of work if we decide that we're not necessarily going to be faithful to the world as it is in things that actually happen and we're willing to weave fiction in with documentary work then I guess the, the question that comes up in response to that is sometimes, well then how can we trust that when you're coming back with this work which is now you know, a faithful translation, that this is, is actually what happened and, and what, we, you know, what is a faithful representation of what happened in the world if sometimes we're willing to mix fiction and fact and, and if this is ever an issue for you. Well, I mean, I, I think it's if, if you're bring, putting in things that are not what happened, there is a risk. I mean, unless it's a, uh, you know, an obvious satire, or for me, use of sound that wasn't recorded at the time, when you're talking about something that happened 50 years ago, it's clear enough that it's, that that's, it's, it's trying to be evocative. But in terms of you know, sort of adding things that didn't happen with things that did happen, I mean, I think that's a pretty clear line that one must advise the listener. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, that's my own, my own, other people might feel differently. Uh, we'll take one more question and then we'll um, be moving to Ari. So, you want to introduce yourself? Sure. I won't do it. Hi, is this on? But uh, uh, I'm John Blythe from WFUV in New York. And I remember hearing the piece on fresh air and found it very compelling at the time. But something you alluded to in setting this piece up, uh, has this story been told before elsewhere, uh, perhaps in, in Israel? And if so, how did you tell it differently? And perhaps more importantly, if they're so used to telling this story, how did you get them beyond just telling, telling it wrote as they've told it to many journalists? Mm. Uh, it's, it's a story that has been told before. Uh, um, I don't know to what extent. I mean, Dahlia, as I mentioned, has written about this. It's become a public story. 
Um, there have been some other uh, evocations on it. In fact, we had a crazy, crazy deadline because Bob Simon was doing a piece for Sunday morning and we wanted to beat him on the story. We managed to, not sleeping for 48 hours, we beat him. Uh, our piece was done on Friday, uh, so we were proud of that. Um, but, but anyway, the, the, other, the other piece of that is that, uh, to answer the other part of your question, is just I spent a lot of time with both of them. I, inter I had probably five or six sessions with each of them, lasting you know 90 minutes to two hours. So basically it was just really connecting with them, a lot of eye contact, a lot of sitting with them, a lot of, you know, a lot of empathy to the story. And, and, and Dahlia in particular is, I mean, her, her English is so rich and she, she's so right there with you. And, and Bashir is as well. So it, was, it wasn't that hard to get beyond the sort of rehearsed. Well, thank you, Sandy. And uh, you can hear the lemon tree if you haven't already on the thirdpostfestival.org site. So thanks for sharing that with us. Um, next, we're going to Ari Golden. And uh, we're going to be talking about Shades of Grey. That was a co-production with Ari and Jonathan Mitchell here. And uh, I just want to say Shades of Grey is not your usual documentary about abortion, and it began actually out of a grassroots effort um, advocacy project. So you want to tell us a little bit about the beta project and how that led to Shades of Grey? Sure. Um, <clears throat> so through a mutual friend, uh, Sarah Varney, who's in the house, I'd just like to honor um, Sarah, if you could stand up. Sarah came to my house two years ago with great passion about women's stories before um, abortion was legal in, in the United States. And, um, and it come to me, I, I had been working in radio, and so we kind of synced up and um, went out and gathered some stories together uh, and brought Jonathan onto the project. Um, and uh, along with Kate Volkman, who's also in the house, and um, a few other people with the Beta Project team, and we put together um, a compilation of women's stories. And it was really specific to um, the stories before Roe versus Wayne, and just really wanted to get the conversation going about the reality of what people actually went through. Uh, and you know, the details, the stories are not something that you, you hear. Uh, so the tape was really graphic and, and really compelling, and we brought people together uh, I was involved in the project um, for a few of the events where we would bring uh, a, a big group of people together in sort of a warehouse um, or you know art space or uh, you know something like that, and bring chairs together, play the audio, and then break people up into groups in five separate segments. So there were five segments of the audio, and then five series of questions that were sort of um, meant to facilitate conversation and get people talking about the audio and how they responded to it. So uh, that was a really, it was a really powerful um, and still is continuing to be a very powerful project. Um, and so that, that's how it started. And then um, uh, took tape from the project and pitched it to PRI and they thought it was compelling tape, and, um, and so then Shades of Grey was born. Well, uh, let's uh, hear an excerpt that you chose, and tell us why you chose this excerpt out of the whole hour. Well, I, I think that this particular excerpt is um, calling to sort of the, 
the diff it's, it's, sort of, it's the philosophy of the piece. The philosophy of the piece is really looking at where people meet when they have uh, you know, a, a really distinct, um, uh, uh, w when they don't agree, basically. So basically, you know, when two people are kind of on opposite sides, they don't see the humanity in each other. They don't, they can't kind of get beneath the rhetoric and, and look at each other as human beings. And so that, I think, is, is what this particular um, segment speaks to. And I thought it was, it was kind of talking about the philosophy of the piece. Great, let's go ahead and hear it. truly is a sense that we can have, and I think if we all draw on our own experience, we can see this, where we feel safe to be who we are and to hold the views that we have. You know, the times that I've talked to people about having an abortion, it's, it's interesting because you don't always know what someone thinks about abortion. You don't know how they're going to take it when you tell them that you've been through one or that you've experienced one with somebody. I, I never had such a hard time telling friends, and I always thought that it would change their whole opinions of me. That life is not yours, it's from God. This is steeped in very, very deep value systems. This whole issue feels like a, some sort of awful paradoxical problem that a philosophy professor cooks up to make his students crazy. People who are on either side of that, each side are in is pretty well based on, from their perspective, a non-negotiable place. Deep, utterly clear moral truth. And more than just moral truth, defense of people who need defending. What happens, though, is the unwillingness to respect the values of the other side, the choice at some deep level not to do that. What does this young woman really want? What's troubling her? The difficulties of many people's lives are so great that it's often hard to make choices other than the choices for survival. It is a strong woman who can decide on her own what is best for her. Not what's best for the man, not what's best for society, but what's best for her. The counselor said, have you thought about your options? And I said, yes. When she decides what is best for her, she should go with her heart. And she said, well, you know, what are they? And I said, I'm going to have an abortion. And she said, OK. OK. So uh, how did you know? Oh, go ahead. Um, we'll be hearing another clip, too, a little bit later, but if you do have questions while we're talking, just feel free to stand up and uh, get to the mic. How did you know, Ari, that this was the right way to tell this story? Well, I thought that it was, it was really clearly not talked about. Um, and so in, just in the experience of being a woman and, and also you know, being in relationships and, you know, talking with friends about the issue. I mean, everybody experiences abortion, whether it be directly or indirectly, and everybody has an opinion on it. And so that's not really talked about. And, um, and it's kind of this secret that people aren't comfortable with, and it's kind of, it's, it's just very delicate territory. And 
So I was really interested, and Jonathan as well, we were interested in kind of talking about what's so pervasive and yet so secret. Um, and I think, you know, the, I mean, the, really the way to kind of get at that is to get to the, to the human ambiguity of the issue and that it's not something that you can just say, well, it's this way or it's this way. I mean, you can say that, but it doesn't really kind of work. It doesn't move the conversation forward. And I think that um, in getting to the humanity of the difficulty of the topic, uh, by getting kind of diffusing that argument, that I think that was a really fresh way to, to go at it. So. so you used ambiguity as a way to not take sides then? Absolutely, yeah. I mean, just going out and interviewing people, um, I, was, uh, I was telling Jamali, uh, I had gone out and sat with pro-life people, if you want to mm -hmm. label them as such, but you know, they were outside of an abortion clinic with signs, really gruesome signs and you know, chanting. And, um, and I sat with them for a couple hours and you know, just kind of sat quietly and waited for quite a while before I turned on the mic. And, um, and it, was, it was really profound. It, initially, they were kind of wondering, well, you know, is she with us or against us? And, and then, um, you know, I, I really didn't ask a lot of questions. I really listened a lot. And, um, and in, in doing so, I thought it, it kind of went from being this, you know, roll your eyeballs, like, okay, they're, they're getting defensive, to actually really humanizing them and, and really understanding where they're coming from and why they hold the views that they do and that they, they did feel safe to, to kind of explore it. And I think that in doing that, they almost came to a, a, a couple of a couple of people in particular kind of came to um, just a real trust and and I think a deepening of their own perspective, which they might not have might not have. It seemed like it was kind of a new thing that that they had thought about. So you think it opened up dialogue then Absolutely. in listening and in, in doing this, but also listening to the because you use this uh, or this piece has been used a lot by groups as a way to talk to each other? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, we've been very, just very lucky to have had teachers who, who heard the, the broadcast and then brought it into their classrooms, to their health, health classes, and kids you know, in high school um, and, and college as well, just you know, people who are coming from very different places with this issue and hearing Hearing the documentary, I think it, you know it, it really opened up the dialogue in their classrooms as well, and um, a lot of people through hearing it might have changed their opinions or opened up more or not have been so on the on on one side or the other. Well, I want to hear another piece, and I want to move on to Jonathan, who was your co-producer, and uh, I guess Jonathan, when you first told me that you had. Geo. Okay. <laughs> Go ahead. Go ahead. Geo Beach. I had a question for Ari and, and, and actually also for, for Sandy. Uh, Ari, I understood what you were talking about with the breakout sessions from the beta project, but when you were gathering the sound for Shades of Grey, were the um, respondents from the uh, the different sides of the abortion issue 
were those sounds gathered separately? And then a question for, for Sandy as well. When you were getting Dahlia and Bashir's uh, uh, comments, was that sound gathered always separately, or were those um, uh, two people ever together in, in, in the time of your sound gather? I'm just interested in the, in the technique of where you got that, whether, whether the coming together was only in the production, or whether uh, the final product, or whether it was in the sound gathering, and, and, and uh, talk a little bit about your uh, perspective on that. Um, when you say separately, do you, do you mean the beta project, I gathered those interviews separately, and then, I mean, do you mean, are you talking about the actual abortion that we recorded? For, for uh, Shades of Grey, when you, because you were talking about sitting with uh, 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 pro-life uh, people, presumably at the time that you gathered sound from them, there right. weren't uh, 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 um, pro-choice people uh, present in that group of picketers. And so my question is whether you uh, uh, got sound from uh, uh, responses from pro-life people uh, and then separately from pro-choice people mm -hmm. and integrated them in shades of gray mm -hmm. or whether you ever gathered it where those groups were together in a circumstance. Mm -hmm. and, and likewise, the, the question for Sandy, because he started out saying that he was in Ramallah and then in uh, Jerusalem. Mm -hmm. um, uh, and I wondered, uh, uh, recounting an actual meeting, but I'm wondering during the production of The Lemon Tree, whether Dahlia and Bashir were ever together. Yeah, everything was separate, um, pretty much. I mean, the sounds were authentic to the interviews. So I was interviewing um, the, the doctor, and then he led me into the room where, you know, there, there's the abortion device. So, you know, in that interview, that was sort of, you know, I gathered sound where I could if it was relevant to the conversation. Um, there, I, I don't remember just gathering. in the same in the same thing so yeah they were separate conversations and then um, Jonathan edited them together so just briefly Gio the same thing uh, with me I, I there wasn't a point at which Dahlia and Bashir were together partly because uh, Bashir was not allowed to travel to Jerusalem from Ramallah uh, they hadn't seen each other in a couple of years uh, it felt like it would have been a little bit forced um, I considered trying to get them together at the end and talk to each other, but then it really didn't seem necessary. Uh, Dahlia probably would have been willing to go up to Ramallah, but it just, 
I put them all, I juxtapose them all in the studio. So I'd like to move to Jonathan here in thinking about Shades of Grey. Um, okay. <laughs> um, thank you. My name is Tanya. And my question is actually for Ari and Jonathan about the, the music. You know, in a piece like this where the subject matter is so powerful and the human voices stand on their own, the music becomes, especially as you, Jonathan, a composer, uh, your, another voice. And what was that voice saying in this piece for you? How did you use it? Was it representing yourselves in that piece? And um, no, I, I wrote all the music for the piece. Okay. And um, no, I, okay. um, actually, I'm going to play. I'm about to play another clip that has um, a lot of music too, and it's actually a little bit more integrated. Um, Do you mind if we uh, play the clip and then answer that question? Because I think yeah, that's what's coming it, up. It would now. make sense to talk about it yeah. after that. But, um, but you were brought in as the musician and co-producer and sound designer, so um, you want to talk about that after the clip? Yeah. Okay, let's go ahead and play the, the second clip from Shades of Grey. Most of us who get pregnant or have a loved one who gets pregnant, blood tests, peeing in cups, at 14 weeks, do not describe it as probing an inanimate thing that could get sucked out by tools and a vacuum without much concern. White lights and having a child is not just like anything else in the world. Because there really is no other circumstance table and stirrups in which something goes from not being a human being to being a human being and this process takes place inside the body of someone else. A physical in contact with your body. Attachment. It just doesn't exist anywhere else. Still present in the room with the experience, but removed enough not to be drowning in a pool of pain and disgust. Vacuum and the notion that tissue and the bearing of children could be diminished in this way. And then just kind of high velocity, like spiraling, spirit swirling havocly all about in this little room, up this this tunnel that led from the center of the building sucked out and up, up into the sky, up into the sky. Whatever you're feeling, whatever it may be. It was just very bizarre, discomforting feeling. Be true to those feelings. Real crying, the real tears and crying that are so foreign to my system. Do you end up feeling as though you made a tough choice that maybe you made the right way and maybe you didn't? Yet here we are. Or do you end up thinking that you killed something? It's the choice to make life or not make life. But it was so in my body, you know, that there it was and there I was. And I want to be able to go in and do this parent without being forced parent to go crazy thinking about its existence was so apparent. The ethical consequences of it. And the moment, the moment that it was separated from my body, from my space, I knew that it was a real thing. 25 or 30 years of people persuading you that these were babies. That little spirit had been waiting. That made you feel. I definitely did feel that. That there's baby souls out there. That it, uh, That you somehow got rid of. Took something away from you. 
for like what a few minutes of of great sex or maybe not even great sex you know So another way of perhaps uh, finding one's voice or getting past what I call the groan factor, which is when you say you're doing a piece that's probably considered that it's been covered a lot, how do you tell it in a new way? So um, Jonathan, talk about how the music was integral to this piece. Um, well, let's see. I'll, I'll talk about the, the groan factor and then I'll talk about the music a little bit. Um, the, when, um, now I've been working a little bit on the beta project. I just did some engineering and I wrote some music that you didn't hear here um, for that project. But when Ari came to me with the uh, idea that we would do an hour documentary, I, um, you know, I knew that what we, need, what we needed to do was not cover it in the way that most people cover it. it seemed, when I thought of like an abortion documentary, I thought, well, it's going to be, most people either are pro-choice or pro-life and they have this agenda they're trying to accomplish. And, um, uh, and so, um, and, and I had this kind of grown factor, like abortion, not another documentary about abortion. But, um, but then, you know, I, I saw that as being a real opportunity because if you can identify that there's a grown factor, if there's something about the subject matter that sort of turns you off, then you know what questions aren't, you can identify what questions aren't being asked and uh, concentrate more on those. And so uh, we got together and talked a lot about it. And uh, one, of the, one of the things, for example, that I was really interested in that I didn't really know anything about because I'd never really been through this experience with anyone uh, was really the, the details of the procedure. Um, what, what really happened, what did, it, what did it really mean to get an abortion? What, what, what physically happens to you when you go into a doctor's office? And, and, um, and so we talked about that and explored that. And, um, you know, we had a section where we uh, where we recorded Ari uh, calling up abortion clinics all over the country, and we asked them all the same questions, and then we sort of had a, a montage out of their different answers. So the questions were things like, uh, you know, how much does it cost? You know, does it hurt? Well, you know, how how do you do it? You know, and then we kind of juxtaposed that with uh, a description of a procedure with a, a, somebody who teaches the procedure in college describing it. And so, um, so, the, so again, the way we got over the growing factor was just by trying to find the questions that we wanted to know the answers to, the, the aspects of the subject matter that were a mystery to me and to Ari. And um, uh, let's see, if the, as far as the music goes, uh, mostly what I was trying to do, uh, I mean, really, I mean, I just wanted to make it good and not suck. <laughs> And, and so, um, so it was really intuitive, a lot of it. I mean, it, a lot of times music is, is me meant to, to tell a story, and it's, it's meant to su support the narrative arc of, of the piece. And um, I mean, I tried to avoid doing things that would take one side or the other. I tried to, to, tried to use musical, music that I felt was sort of neutral in, in terms of its attitude towards the subject matter while still taking into account the, the weight and the gravity of the subject matter. And uh, and so, so that was basically it. I mean, there's certain, certain formal things, you know, about putting a radio show together that, you know, you, you, you can kind of seduce a person, seduce a listener by, you know, having, placing music in certain places, and then you kind of want to hear a break for a while. And, and, um, and, and then there's it's just a feeling. It's very intuitive. So that's, that's the answer.
I think you also produce probably in a different way than a lot of people, which is to produce the music and the sound at the same time, the interviews. Can you talk about that process? Right. Yeah, it was all one big process. I, um, I composed the music as I was editing the, uh, the documentary together. So um, I actually kind of have described it as, uh, it was sort of like the music was composed sort of like, like Lego blocks, putting Lego blocks together. And then I had uh, these, these elements, these musical elements, like an ostinato that was between these three different instruments where they all shifted notes, you know, and, duh, 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 and I could take that and I could transpose it to a different key. That would change the tempo, so I can get different tempos that way and different keys. And then I had uh, like, like cello um, swells and I had uh, all kinds of different sounds, just those library sounds I could mix and match and give this a really nice continuity to the piece so that, you know, if I got to a section where I said this really needs a you know, a, a cello swell or something, you know, and then I, I, I just use the same one or I transpose it a little bit so, to give it some variety. But, uh, so, so that was it. I, 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 was, um, I was thinking about the music as I was editing it, so I would look for ways of the, having the two complement each other so that um, the music by itself and, and the words by themselves um, maybe say one thing independently, but when you put them together, they say a, a third thing altogether. And I tried to look for opportunities to do that and to combine them in ways that would really uh, necessitate the, the combination. And, uh, or at least the combination of them said something other, than, you know, something new. And uh, it's just a really interesting thing for me to explore as a composer and as a radio producer. And I, I kind of, that's something I can sink my teeth into. We're going to take one question and move on to Damali because uh, we, I don't want to run out of time. And if there, if there is time, we'll ask more questions later. So go ahead. A, a question for both Ari and um, Jonathan in that there seem to be moments in Shades of Grey where um, there are things that, like something that someone said, particularly as no one is identified and you don't necessarily know who's talking, certain things that are said that seem to, that they could apply to both you know, one side or the other, and I can see why it's a documentary that could really help foster understanding between those camps, because it's like, you know, depending on, you know, what context you place that comment in, it could be like supporting the pro-choice side or supporting the pro-life side, and I wonder if that was intentional, you know, if, if like that kind of ambiguity, well, shades of gray, I guess that, you know, answered my own question there. Thank you very much. <laughs> well, I know, Thank you. <laughs> Question and answer all right. Saves us time. <laughs> I know that um, Jonathan and I had multiple conversations about riding that fence, and um, I would come to his to his studio, and we would listen to the edits, and we would kind of talk about, well, if we put this comment here, it, you know, it just kind of it was always just this very delicate balancing act, and. Um, and also, and trying to anticipate how people from different points of view might hear a given phrase, you know, depending on if you had children, you might hear it differently. Or, you know, if you'd been through the experience, you hear it another way. If you were very pro-life, you hear it another way. And so just trying to take into account, I remember there were certain sections where I, I was really excited by it because I could say, well, you know, each one of these phrases, if you were, you know, you, you could get something completely different out of it, depending on how, you know, what you brought to it. And, uh, you know, it's just a really fun place. Another um, sort of thing that, that Sean was mentioned that reminded me of he reminded me of was that uh, um, we we didn't have narration and uh, we didn't identify anyone and um, there was there was one thing that was really interesting to me about the way we approached it was uh, that 
um, Ari had interviewed all these people, and I, I tried to just edit out the sections of the interviews that were, uh, were not specific to their circumstances, that were really kind of, would be, lots of people who've been through the experience could identify with, and then kind of construct this narrative out of many people's experiences that was this one kind of meta experience, I guess, or, you know, um, that, uh, you know, so you didn't identify necessarily with one protagonist, you more, it put you more in the position of maybe identifying it with it as though it were you going through the experience, or your daughter, or your girlfriend. Um, so so that's, that's sort of what we were going for. Something also I just wanted to touch on um, that was interesting is when we got a bunch of responses from people who, uh, you know, some were pro-life, some were pro-choice, and both parties thought that the documentary was speaking to them. So um, that that was a really, it was compelling to, to get the responses that we did and have them be from such diverse um, backgrounds. So. Good, good. Um, that's interesting. I want to get to Damali Ayo because here she is. She's a visual artist in a radio world right now. And uh, she does something different than what most radio producers would do, which is uh, we generally have to find a new theme. Uh, we don't do the same theme because it's like you have to do the new story. And Damali explores race and changes the medium rather than the message. Is that correct? Absolutely. So um, let's start with flesh tones, and then we're going to uh, listen to the paint mixers piece. But tell us where the flesh tones idea came from, and what what, what was it? Sure. I, I just have to say I'm I'm kind of blown away that I'm sitting on a panel talking about my work in this context, and I think I'm going to be the most like lighthearted person on the panel. Like, like I'm usually accused of being like really intense and scary and mean. And, like, I, Wow, so, th so this is actually one of the more lighthearted approaches to the subject of race that I've explored, I guess is what I'm saying. I'm sitting here going, gosh, we should have played the other piece, it was really serious. <laughs> so anyway, so <laughs> let me just say that. Um, so, so right, I, I actually have exactly that note to myself today that like, it's so neat to be with audio, people working in audio and saying, wow, you get to jump to all these different uh, subject matters in this one incredible media and I get to do the other thing which is I work in this one incredible subject matter and, and use all these different media and audio has always been something that's interested me and um, so I've been working a lot in dealing with race and racism and my experience of racism in my lifetime and portraying that through different modes of art and um, that ranges from everything to like wiring electrical equipment to quilting to painting to uh, doing a series of greeting cards um, and this particular thing, I got really interested in people's interpretation of how, how people saw me and saw my skin and experienced my skin. And so I conceived of this idea that I would, uh, well, and also uh, goes back to the fact that I, I grew up around hardware stores and um, love hardware stores and the paint <laughs> department. And so, so I had this idea that I would go in and talk to the paint people in the hardware stores who always claim that they can mix a color to match anything in the world and um, give them different parts of my body to mix, paint to match. So, um, so there were eight parts in, in total. There was my left, left and right arm, uh, my belly, my face, my palm, my thigh, my left breast, and my back. Um, and, on, and that was eight different paint mixers throughout the Portland area. Um, they were all white, all but one were men. Um, 
and so and the other piece that, that came up with this is I'm always, like I said, very interested in using audio in my work and have for a while. And, and I'm a natural eavesdropper. I'm the youngest of three children. My parents never told me anything that was going on in the house, and so I, I had to find out on my own. So I, I took my little tape recorder and my like little Sony lapel mic with me um, to see these guys and recorded them. Um, so it has kind of, a, as it's been said, a lo-fi feel to it. But I, li I like that a lot. Um, and, uh, and so I caught the process on tape. And uh, so Damali and I worked on this and this ended up on Studio 360. So let's go ahead and, and play the paint mixers piece. James, left outer forearm by scanning machine, July 15th, 2.46 p.m., neutral base. How can I help you? Well, sounds like you can mix any paint color, right? Just about anything. You give me something, I'll do the best I can with it. James is my first and my favorite. I was nervous, but I had inadvertently worn a revealing shirt, and I think my nipples showing through provided a distraction. The paint mixers never suspected I was recording them. I asked James if he could match any color. He said yes, and I pointed to my arm. James stepped up to the challenge. He kept saying, Never done a flesh tone. Never done a flesh tone, which I liked, because it was the first time I can remember my brown skin being referred to as a flesh tone. I felt I was bridging some important barrier, redefining flesh. A white woman asked me, what are you painting, as her brown-skinned daughter appeared from the aisles. I smiled at the girl whom she hugged tight to her as she said, isn't that one? Dawn and Dale left outside forearm by sight, July 15, 4.15 p.m. Accent face. Hi, how are you? I'm doing yours, Michelle. I'm pretty good. I want to get a custom color paint. Okay. Um, Dawn and Dale worked as a team. Don compared me to the fan deck of colors, then passed me up the line of expertise to Dale, saying, remember how you matched that peach that time? Dale basically just eyeballed me, didn't sweat it in the least. He hit it on the first try, pretty impressive. This was exciting because it was a true interpretation of my skin through someone else's eyes. There is something about offering your skin as a color for paint. It isn't artificial, it isn't imported, it isn't coveting something outside of you, a photo in a magazine, a mango, or your neighbor's house. It's there on you all the time. You own it. You don't have to covet it, because it's yours to do with what you please. Okay. Peggy, right palm by scanning machine. August 15, 11.32 a.m. Tint base. I just want to match my palm. Cool. Peggy didn't seem drawn in by the innate sexuality as the others. Part of the appeal for me is a promiscuity of sorts. These brief encounters that allow me to share a part of myself. To ask someone to experience me and offer a souvenir of our interaction. It's selfish, indulgent, vain, and seductive. And I miss that with Peggy. She didn't make small talk when the paint was mixing. I miss the small talk. Brent, face, right cheek by sight. August 24th, 4.40 p.m. Ultra base. Brent was the most intimate of all my paint mixers. He spent 50 minutes with me, and he touched me a lot. I had been single for two years at this point in my life, and intimacy came infrequently and from strange sources. I've been at this since 1974, and I've never matched any body before. He came around the corner and got close to me, tilted my chin just slightly to catch a better light, held the sample up to my face, and always returned to add just a touch more of one tint or another. 
I have to admit, I was attracted to him. I found myself responding by saying, whatever you need me to do, and I trust you. I think my subconscious was storing Brent away for some later sexual fantasy. Andrew, lower back, deep base, by sight, left breast, by sight, white base, August 24, 3.30 p.m. Andrew was diligent, honest, with a bit of a cynical edge. When I asked him to match the color of my back, he said, is your back a weird color? The paint store was empty, which offered me a privacy I hadn't had at other stores. After matching my back, Andrew asked, what's the uh, slightly more intimate that you need to match? What's the slightly more intimate that you want to match? It's this part of my breast. Damn, it's so much lighter. We proceeded to mix a color to match my left breast. He said he hoped he didn't get fired for this. He took me to the back of the store. I revealed enough of my breast to offer him room to compare colors. I didn't think he was phased by it all until he told me my paint was free of charge. Michael, right thigh, November 20th, 2.21 p.m. Deep tone bass. Michael was the last. On matching my skin, he said, well, just have him match me, it's pretty close. When I asked him what nude was, he offered, like, my arms are one color, but then my butt's a different color, you know, more nude. <laughs> After an hour, Michael came up with my least favorite color, more of a taupe than a vibrant thigh brown, but hey, this is all about their interpretation, not mine. I just want to say that I originally recorded all that audio to do, I, I painted one whole room in a gallery the color of my arm, and then I had this audio piece that had been done by a sound producer. But um, when Dime expressed an interest in producing that particular piece, which is where it came from, it just, it took on a whole life that has just been remarkable to me. So I just want to thank her for that process. Well. I think uh, in doing this, I, I thought, oh, should we re-record the sound? And the sound that she captured, the interactions, just had to be what they were, you know, regardless of what the quality was. And, and frankly, you know, it could not have been reproduced um, at all. <laughs> so that was the choice in that. But also, I just think, uh, oh, we have to say that they did know, the paint mixers knew, you did tell uh, after, them. After, yeah, sure, after the recording, I actually, I got to know them all very well. They all mix my paint now. Don and I go back to see Dale every time I need a color done. Um, and, um, and so I, I wrote them all a letter, and I told them about the project, and I told them about the show. Um, and the, the show ended up being 38 paintings on um, recycled kitchen cabinet doors, so each door was a different skin tone, and then a whole room that was matched to my left arm, uh, which Don did at Miller Paint. Which you can see on damaliio.com, so yeah. yeah. Uh, we have a question here. Uh, yeah, um, this is sort of a philosophical question. Um, I visited rentanegro.com a few months ago, and um, I, I really identified with some of the ideas you expressed about, I mean, the underlying idea behind it, which is I'm tired of explaining myself all sure. the time, and I'm tired of explaining why it is different. But it strikes me that in your work, that's kind of what you're doing all the time. And 
what I guess I'm wondering, is, is, is this something, an, an, another form of explaining what you are to people who don't understand, or how do you construe this kind of work? How do I construe it? Well, sure. Talk a little bit about rentanegro.com. Yeah, um, rentanegro.com is a web art performance um, that is a website where, um, it's a satirical website where you can go on and rent my services for a fee, an hourly fee. Um, every, there, it's, based on, it's based on my life experience. That is that I, I find myself in situations quite a bit where I'm being asked certain questions over and over again. I'm being um, tokenized or brought into a certain situation because I'm like the colorful element. And, um, and I decided I, it was time to get paid. <laughs> so, um, and it came out of my, I was really, really burnt out and really sore and, and physically sore. And my mother said, well, you know, yeah, you can't just be everybody's rent a Negro. And she was quoting a comedian from the 60s, Godfrey Cambridge. And, um, and so it just stewed in me and became that. So that's what she's referring to. And it's, yeah, I, I live in a kind of irony in that, yeah, I am a little bit tired of explaining myself. Um, but it has been my life since I can remember it. I don't remember a time when I wasn't explaining myself. When I discovered artwork, um, it created a venue for that that I could also have fun with and make a buck once in a while. Um, and so, because you know, uh, in, any, in, any, in any art form, right, we, we work on what we know, we work on what we're passionate about. Sometimes we work on things we're just curious about. Race, in my experience, it contains all of those things, and so it, I'm compelled to do that if that makes sense and answers your question. I construe it as, as, as just like, I, I do, I paint what I know, I write what I know, I make what I know. Um, and I think people often expect me to be real like bitter and pissed off like, I'm not talking to you, you know? But um, that's not, but I have a blast. <laughs> I laughed my way through Rent a Negro, my goodness. I had so much fun writing that thing. So, um, so it's, it's also trying to enjoy that experience. Well, I think satire is very important in your work, isn't it? Um, satire has always inspired me. I'm really inspired by like Jonathan Swift's A Modest Proposal, something like War of the Worlds, you know, as we're talking about like radio work. When you can get people to really like wander in and question, I think when we pose a reality that is not real, it starts us to question about what we think is real and I, that's very, very powerful. So kind of like, um, you know, the idea of a mockumentary in a way, I suppose, does that as well. I, I like the way you bring new ideas to, um, to race, or new ways of thinking about it. And one of your new projects is panhandling for reparations or the living flag. So tell us about that. Yeah, that's a, <laughs> yeah, I, I guess there's a part of my sense of humor that I'm really playing around with. And also I wander into, I find that I wander into all my work kind of innocently, believe it or not. So like, I'm like, oh, I'm gonna go to the paint store and get paint mixed to match my breast. You know, like, I just kind of like, wow, that's gonna be interesting. So then that, one of the next things I'm doing is, um, and, and also like, to me, skin and paint went together, okay? So to me, like, um, this questions and this, this interrogation about race and difference goes with e-commerce. Um, and so uh, the struggle for reparations naturally paired up with my fascination for panhandling. And so I am hitting the streets. Actually, I just did a, another a day in Portland. Um, after this conference, the day after the 19th, I'll be panhandling in Chicago, followed by Boston, New York, and DC, um, where I simply just sit on the streets with a can and a sign that says 200 years of slavery, United States reparations accepted here. Wow. <laughs> so far, I've made um, 
$28. No, but in all seriousness, in all seriousness, I have made, and the, the, the piece, um, it's, it's interesting because everybody who passes me on the street has an experience with that work, and I'm sure of that, and I don't think I've been, ever been so sure of something in my life. And then there's this other wonderful thing that I'm curious about, which is I'm, right, I'm giving people receipts, which mm -hmm. I'm hoping they will send to the IRS. <laughs> um, and so there's this kind of interesting kind of thing. And then Dime is also going to work with me to produce that into some kind of audio um, segment as well. Because um, and, and the and the first time I did it in Portland, I was on on audio, and it's fascinating to find people's responses to something I find fairly non-confrontative, and I find a lot of people are. You know, there's quite a bit of yelling at me that happens. <laughs> how, do you, how do you keep, I mean, that's so brave to me, so how do you do that? How do you put yourself out there like that? I have no choice. Okay. I mean, there's a part of me that feels like I do it anyway, and so I might as well do it as a public spectacle. <laughs> I mean, I, I, I'm just so compelled. I'm so compelled. Um, I don't, like I said, I don't remember a time when I wasn't teaching about racism, not since I was not since I could speak, before I could speak, I was doing education about racism. Just, I just always find myself in that experience. And so, um, I, and just, uh, it just feeds my curiosity. And then, you know, there's other things. I just did a piece for a show on eugenics, um, which evoked the Beatles song, Eleanor Rigby, wearing the face that she keeps in the, in the jar by the door, where I did these latex, rubber latex molds of my face and put them in jars. And it would kind of evoke the idea of what happens if we're cloned from different parts of our body. Are we different people? Would we turn out differently? So all social issues, which I call social junk, are just really fascinating to me. We have a question, Richard. With both of you being artists, with I assume having artistic temperaments, but one being a visual artist and one being an audio artist, where were the points of tension in your collaboration and where were the points of surprising uh, where, where you worked well together or differently in ways that you didn't expect? I don't know. I think we had very little tension. I, in, in all honesty, I think Dime and I have kind of found ourselves as kindred spirits in Portland because we're both very much doers. Like, we do what we say we're going to do, and we come together, let's do it, let's get it done, and let's do it right. Um, I think for me, it was the first time I had really done in like an audio voiceover in the studio. The other audio pieces I've done, I've used sampled text or I had an actress do a piece um, where it was recorded and used in one of my art shows. And so Dmay directing me was certainly a new experience for me and just my nervousness and getting it wrong and damn it, I can't say that. I keep saying it the same way and I can't change it. You know, those, those kind of um, beginner <laughs> things were moments of tension for me, but I think it's been very smooth. Yeah, I would uh, yeah, second that, definitely. There's a lot of mutual respect as well, which helps. What I like about working out of the realm of audio um, and meeting people who do work that's from different medium or media um, is that you get to think outside of yourself um, and in a different way, perhaps, than you're used to thinking. So Damali's really helped me to think in a different way about what audio means to me. So. Um, I, I recommend it, you know, that collaboration. Yeah, and, and there are moments when Dime would say, I'd say, that's like 10 minutes we shaved off, and she'd be like, that was about 30 seconds. So, so there's this wonderful awareness that she had of time and sound that was exciting to me that I, I hope to be able to cultivate. And also, we also both work in the theater community in Portland, so we had common ground there as well. And also, being people of color in Portland, I think, made us natural sisters. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I, I had a question I wanted to ask. How do you deal 
uh, or do you have different ways of dealing with the anger if people come up to you when you're panhandling on your website? Do you reflect it back? Do you dissolve it? Do you ignore it? And how do you how do you do it? That's a great question, and I'm just going to answer with a quick story. When I was panhandling that first day, I was on. I had so many technical issues. I had video, camera, audio, all this stuff. So I was on audio, and one guy had come up and said, "Well, how much do you want? Why don't you live in reality? Get back to you know." So and I was fascinated by him, and I was in, engaging with him because I was I was recording. And I got up to move, and I turned, I remember I had the headphones on to make sure I was capturing the audio, I turned off the audio, and this other woman came to me and just laid into me, right? You're so uneducated, you're completely stupid. She's yelling at me, I'm going, I'm, uh, <laughs> my little college degree is going, I'm sorry, what? She's uneducated. <laughs> and, and I wasn't recording, right? And I said, you know what? I'm walking away from you. And I just left. And so it was an interesting thing that when, it come, when it's for my work, you know, there's a certain amount I'm willing to go through. And then when it's not, I'm not. <laughs> and I learned that so on that day. Like, it's, a performance, it's, a, it's a performance threshold in, in some it is a I, I think I have put it in that realm, yeah. And I surround myself with people where I don't have to do that kind of work all the time. Because who wants to live that way? It's just, it really gives me physical pain. So, um, so yeah, I learned that day that there are certain things that I do for my work. And then that work becomes for the community at large, I really feel. Um, so yeah, it's weird when it's that personal. We are like two minutes before we have to quit. So we'll take a, one more quick question then. OK, um, my name is Julie, and I work with The Next Big Thing. Jonathan, I'm familiar with your more satirical work that you've done for us. And I didn't know that you worked on Shades of Grey. But um, I guess my question is for any of you, maybe more applies to some than others. We often debate, should we take a satirical or a serious approach to a topic that we think is pressing? And I think there are costs and benefits to both. So I'm wondering if any of you want to talk about how you choose an approach to an important topic. Anybody? I can just answer really quickly, and I'd love to hear what you have to say. Um, for me, it totally depends on my mood. I think that it's all really important to do. I think that satire is very hard to do. Like I have to really put my brain through the meat grinder to get really good satire. I think satire can go bad real fast. Um, I, you know, Jonathan. I don't think you get better than Jonathan Swift's a modest proposal. Like to me, that's a perfect piece of satire, and it's it's incredibly effective and it's incredibly misunderstood, and that's the line that you really ride. But I think every moment, every moment and every subject is going to require and, and call on a different way of approaching it. And I think it, it, really, it really is mood related in a lot of ways. I think it probably depends a lot on what you're trying to say, what you're trying to accomplish with the piece. You know, if, if, you know, um, I don't know, that she, uh, Emily mentioned that I'd done a couple of satire pieces for Next Big Thing, but those kind of started off, the, the idea sort of, it was obvious that it needed to be that. Um, I don't know, the, the, the way we, ended up approaching this, it just, the, the abortion documentary was just, uh, it just, I don't know, it just felt, the, it just felt natural and intuitive, and I, I didn't really put a lot of thought, thought into that, it, because it just seemed clear from the beginning, so. There you go. Just to, to quickly add, I mean, I, I think that, that humor, whether it's satire or other form, it can be an incredibly effective way of of allowing people to attach to a subject without just being put off or overwhelmed. But it, as you say, it's, it's very tricky. And I think it's, it's more successful, it's easier anyway, if it's attached to your own personal point of view 
or a point of view as somebody that you're, because if you're trying to represent different sides of an issue and you're satirizing both of them, it, I don't know, it, then I think you're running <laughs> into danger more, whereas if you're, if you're trying to make a point and you're doing it with humor, I think it's, it, it can be more effective that way. And I think it's really underused uh, on, on public radio, at least the stuff I've heard recently. And I think there's also this really important piece too, like for my Rent a Negro site, every question, every service listed on the site is something that somebody has actually asked of me. So it may be satirical, but it's still totally based in reality. And so it's, it's like kind of unflappable in that way. And that's really, really important. Mm -hmm. And Ari? Well, I mean, I, I think that, you know, using humor is something that is so, it's so difficult. Um, and I think that if the story calls for it, then, you know, it just kind of presents itself. It's not like, I don't think trying to be funny works, but I think that if, uh, you know, if, if it can be authentic and naturally funny, then you've got something there. So I would say, yeah, the material calls for it. So every story hopefully tells itself yeah. in the way it's supposed to be told. Well, and I think, you know, if you're going to use, if you're going to take abortion and try to make that funny, I don't know how hard. you do it. Yeah. <laughs> right. Citizen Ruth is very funny. Citizen Ruth, right. Well, right. well, we're coming to the close here, and I want to thank uh, you guys for being a great audience. The time has just flown by, and thank you to Ari Golden and Sandy Tolan and Jonathan Mitchell and Damali Ayo.